welcome to Digital Works Oral History Podcasts. This series is called Escaping the Blitz, an oral history of London's evacuees. During the Second World War, millions of children were evacuated from London to escape the dangers of bombing. This project explores the experiences of those evacuees separated from their families to live very different lives in the countryside. London Primary School children interviewed 24 Londoners who were evacuated as children from the capital. Episode 1 explores the memories of the outbreak of war and of the fear, confusion and excitement of those early days when so many children were rushed out of London to unknown destinations around Britain. We hope you enjoy the podcast. You remember the good things, but you try to put the bad things in the back of your mind. So. I'm trying to draw things out of the back of my mind, which is difficult really now, at my age. (laughs) But I would like people in the future to know really what went on. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. When I grew up, I heard all the terrible stories of what war was like and all the suffering and the killing and the injuries. And the thought that there might be another one coming was an, was an awful one. The threat of uh, Hitler invading England was very real in those days. It was very worrying. Very apprehensive because we didn't know what to expect. We thought it was almost the end end of the earth sort of thing, you know. And uh, it was very frightening, very frightening indeed. The thing I remember most about the war to start with, I think we were going to Marabin Station to my aunt's in High Wycombe. The air raid sirens went and um, we ended up in a under a hotel, right down in the basement. It was packed out with people. And all I remember is one or two people screaming their heads off, wondering what was happening. But I was a child and I was protected from everything, but I did know and hear what was going on. And I knew my mother was very frightened and very worried, terribly upset for my brothers. One was, was 18 and one was 17. And as the day was declared, the war was declared, they volunteered immediately. I remember listening to my mum and dad with their ears glued to the radio, the wireless, we called it then. And I remember the chamber saying, we are, now, we are now at war. And I remember my dad putting his hand to his forehead and looking quite worried. And I asked him, what is war, dad? And he said, never mind, never mind, you're going on a trip. You're going on a trip, you're going to go away. During the 1930s, the British government had drawn up plans to evacuate children from cities into the countryside in the event of war. Operation Pied Piper was put into effect immediately when war was declared 
on the 3rd of September 1939. In the first three days, over 1.5 million people were relocated. Our government said, the first thing we've got to do is to protect our boys and girls from terrible bombing like that. And if war breaks out, we'll try to send them to a safe place, maybe out in the countryside, away from factories and things of that kind. And that's how all this big evacuation took place. Uh, of course, they were afraid. If bombing started, everybody would rush to the railway stations and try and get out of London, and there would be people fighting to get on trains. So they said, we must get this all arranged. The local council of each area had been round to each house and said, you have a room to spare or you have a bed to spare. And, and they, so they said, you can take one, you can take two. The host families had to take you. They, they, were, they didn't have a choice. They were being paid to take you. Some of them were kind, but some of those that didn't want to have people in their house were not so kind. The hosts were given an allowance to look after the evacuees. It was a bit like um, family allowance. There were two schemes, women, mothers with young children and school children. Well, children were evacuated. If they wanted to be, it wasn't compulsory. If their parents wanted them to be evacuated, they could be. The idea of sending the children away uh, from their mothers wasn't necessary to save the children. It was a polit political thing so that the mothers were available to work in the munitions factories. My mother uh, continued her job uh, as a cleaner in the war office and she also had, uh, although I was evacuated with my two big sisters, because we were five children in our family, although I was evacuated with my two big sisters, my mother still had two young boys, little boys to look after. So she was looking after them. My dad joined the army. Mummy had the, the, the chance to send me with my school and we went away from there. My mother had to send me away. She must have been devastated because her two sons were going into war and her babe, I was a very much precious child to be sent away to strangers. A lot of children were sent away straight away by their parents. I was an only child and my parents were very reluctant to let me go alone. Eventually, the war office let a parent go with a child. So your father or your mother could go with you. So I went with my mother. My mother was evacuated when she was pregnant with me. So I was born in a maternity hospital in Retford. As soon as war broke out, we were evacuated. We, were, we all went to school that day, just normal, and the teacher said, go home, now you go back, and we bring back with you, in a case, uh, pyjamas and things, and different things she told us to bring back. Well, you had a little suitcase, and it's all you had was a, a, a change of underclothes, and uh, a couple of shirts, um, the shoes that you stood up in, uh, and, a, and a jacket, and a cap. We were only allowed to take our gas mask in a box like that and a little carrier bag which had my doll and a book. That's all I took. When I was first evacuated, which was my birthday, I was handed this little present. My mother said, there's a little present for you. And in this, in this wrapped up parcel was a pair of new pyjamas. And, uh, and 
I never had new pajamas before because if you've got two big sisters, you never got anything new. You've got you've got it all handed down. But these were my own pajamas. Uh, a girl older than me, because I was six and she was thirteen, and she lived in the road, a few houses up. And I didn't really know her, but my mum asked if she would look after me because she was that much older than me. Sad, obviously, because you know didn't know what was happening. So, and your parents weren't allowed to go to the station with you. You had to say goodbye at the school because they thought it would be too, too traumatic for the parents to go to the actual station and say goodbye. So you had to say goodbye at the school. Went to the school and then the teachers like, put us in buses which were blacked out, the windows, and took us to the station. And then when we got uh, off the, on the station, they gave us all a gas mask in a little brown box and put a brown label on with our name on. I took my, uh, my gas mask on my shoulder and they put a label in my collar. In my collar, it was like a suitcase. I didn't like that label. I thought, well, you know, I like nice clothes. There you go. I was told I was going away on holiday. Mummy just said to me, you're going to stay with some nice people who will look after you and be a good girl. I mean, that's all I was told, really. It was only when I actually got on the coach and I knew my mother was crying, of course, but as were all other stuff, it makes me very emotional. We'll meet again Don't know where Don't know where but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through just like you always do till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. And I, have, I don't remember any fear, I must have had fear, I'm sure I did, to hold a stranger's hand or to go on a train. I didn't know where I was going and to see my mother in tears. When I had to leave her, we had a bus and then went to a train station. I'm not sure which uh, train station it was. Well, my dad was, had already gone to war. He was already in the army. And it, it was strange being so young and seeing your mum walking away. You know, you, for, it, it didn't sink in until you realised that she wasn't coming back. And you can imagine all these kids around you all crying and wanting their mums. And I remember looking across just as the coach was going to pull out and I remember seeing my mother wiping tears from her eyes. She had a baby because I had two young boys. One was a baby and one was the, the other one was about five. And I remember him hanging on to her and, uh, and she had a baby. And I remember wiping her eyes. And I turned to my sister and I said, oh, mum's crying. Why is mum crying? And she just nudged me and said, shut up, be quiet and get on your way. And I can remember queuing up with my brother. Um, and I know I must have been quite upset. I was probably crying. I mean, I was only four, four, six. And uh, 
I remember my dad running up and sticking a little piece of paper in my top pocket, which I've still got, with my name and address on it, where I came from. So I've still got a little, little piece of paper that he wrote. I didn't realise I was leaving them. Didn't know I was leaving my dad, right? It was only when my mum put me on a bus that I was actually being, leaving her behind. But I didn't cry at that time. Most of the children were crying on the bus. But I looked around and I thought, why are they crying, you know? Because it hadn't really, it hadn't registered, yeah? I just uh, got taken to the tube um, and then we would take it. I met some other children and they were crying and uh, we was getting all set to go up to Paddington and we went on the tube to Paddington and I said to my mum on that tube. I was quite excited because um, I'm at five and a half, you, you just like, you just don't really understand, do you, that how serious it is. But in any case, uh, we had no, no option but to get on with it. My mother couldn't read or write. So she was very upset and felt very vulnerable being away from my father. Um, I didn't know that I wasn't going to see him again for at least 18 months, but for my mother it was very traumatic. We were supposed to be evacuated, just my sister and myself, and I think my mother took us to the station and said, right, no, I'm not doing it. If we go, we all go together, and took us home. Evacuation looked like being a big ordeal. Yet so skillfully had the schemes been planned, and so willing was the help forthcoming, that the immense emptying of Britain's cities was carried out with almost the air of routine. The departure of the schoolchildren was, in particular, a triumph of orderly precision. From the crowded towns, children in their thousands left homes and parents behind and went away to live in the safety zones under the care of their teachers. And here, another consoling thought, most of the youngsters went away cheerfully enough. For them, fortunately, the whole procedure seemed to hold no terrors and was even regarded as a holiday. With food and clothing provided by their parents and each carrying a gas mask, they entrained for their excitingly unknown destination. Extremely noisy, very smoky, very night of whistles going. It's, it's just chaos, basically. That's how I remember that. And thousands of people and children being put onto trains, some of them crying, some of them uh, good. We were with our school and school friends and teachers, so we knew them. Excited, happy. We thought, was, I, I really thought we were going out for the day. I don't know what my sisters knew any better. But I thought it was the most wonderful thing to go to school and see this big coach draw and we're all jumping on the coach and we're all singing, we are Londoners and we're all singing and so happy, happy, thought it was a day out. <laughs> a long train journey, a long train journey and as one settled down and got over the excitement of going, that I remember very much, a lot of children started crying. I do remember the teachers. They must have been as upset as everybody was. They had to come with us and take us. And it seemed to be, it went on forever. The, the, the trains were the, the old ones. They were made of wood. They had atrocious springing. The seats were uncomfortable. 
and I creaked and groaned, and if you did open a window, all the smoke and soot from the engine would come in. All, they was all putting their heads out of the window, because they, they was all pasty face, and they thought, if they're going in the country, they'll have rosy cheeks. So they put the, their heads out the window, and come back and they say, have I got rosy cheeks? So they know. So that's all a bit disappointed. Uh, I was very fortunate. I was nine on that day, but I had two big sisters with me, one age 11 and one age 13. So I took comfort that they were there, but I remember the journey was just amazing. I thought the journey of seeing all these, all these fields and all these, all these trees and no people, no houses. I kept asking my sister, where are the houses? And, and also, what are those little white dots out there? They, she said, they're sheep. You must have read that in your book, she said. You must have read that in a storybook. There are sheep and cows. I said, oh my God, what do they do? She said, well, cows give you milk. That was the end of that. I never drank any milk from then. <laughs> when I found out the milk came from cows. I think for me it was exciting because um, I hadn't been on a long journey. I went to Manchester, so to get on a big train and go to Manchester, I didn't really know where we were going, but as long as I was with my mother, I felt quite secure. Taken from the streets of the towns and transplanted into the simpler, healthier life of the country. A sudden reversal of all that has been going on since our industrial age began. A million children moved, and not one casualty. But getting them away was one thing. Sorting them out and fixing them up in their new billets, well, as you can guess, that was even harder. First, they were all taken to one place in each town or village to be sorted out. There they were, children of all shapes and sizes from all sorts of homes, going to people they'd never seen in their lives before. When we did arrive at the station we were going to, it was only a, like a, a station, a shop, a house, and a platform, there's nothing else there. It, we could have been in the middle of the desert, there was nothing else there. And these hundreds of children spilled off. Well, I went to Brecon in Wales, and then when I was in Brecon, there was a big lorry there waiting for me, and, and these other seven children, and we, we got up the uh, lorry, and we went to a village, and it was called Slangvihano Nant Brent. We went to a place called Batley, which is an industrial place in, in Yorkshire. And we were put into a, um, a, a church hall, bearing in mind we'd had no sleep or anything, you know. And there was all these kids milling around in this church hall. And all of a sudden, people started to come in and, and look at you, and I'm, um, you know, what are they doing? And then uh, a, a person came up to me and he said, oh, we'll, we'll take him. I said, no, you take me and my sister. My sister's gonna be with me. And there was a, a big argument ensued, bearing in mind they're all grown ups and I'm a little boy, but I'm fighting my corner to stay with my sister. A whole crowd of women, men and women came in and they picked us off one by one. I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. One by one we were, we were taken away to an unknown destination. We didn't know where we were going. 
my sisters and I were more or less left at the end because each time they picked one of us, we said, no, we have to stay together. My mother said we had to stay together before we left because we had one tin of toothpaste. My sister, my big sister, had the toothpaste. So she said, you can't separate because she's got the toothpaste and nobody has any toothpaste if you separate. So we kept insisting on staying together. But unfortunately, someone eventually, the teacher said, oh, you can't stay together, you must go. So my middle sister, the 11-year-old, was picked and uh, off she went. And I'm crying, I'm saying, where's she going? And the teacher said, you'll see her tomorrow. But we didn't see her. We didn't see her for many, many months. We didn't know where she went. But I didn't even know I was going to be separated until we left the village hall where they were sorting us all out. And they said, well, you're going there, you're going there, and you're going somewhere else. And that's how the three of us were split up. Because there was two of us, they, they actually had a, a, a girl from South London. She was a bit older, about seven, I think she was, um, because they wanted a boy and a girl, the, parent, the family. Well, I was in this, we all lined up, you see, and these people all walked along and looking at us, you know, like we a cattle or something, just looking at us. And I just stood there on the end, and then this couple came up in their 50s, they had um, grey hair and they said, would you come and live with us? And I said, well, I really want to go on a farm. I don't, you know, I, I didn't cry at all because I thought it was exciting to see all the animals and, and I thought it would be an adventure. I was an adventurous person, right? And I was only five and a half, that's all. Anyway, and then I, I said, oh, okay, I'll come with you. And when we got to their house, it was a post office. So I lived in a post office for two and a half years. And eventually, there was just me sitting on my case on my own. And a man came up to me and said, didn't nobody want you? And I went, no. He said, you come home with me. Social worker used to knock on the door of different people's homes. And each, we were in what you call crocodile. So each person knocked at the door, that child went, that child went to the next one, and so on. Until I came to me, and I wasn't housed, right? Now, she had one person left, it was a standby. And that's the lady that, uh, the girl there. And she was able to keep me temporarily, only temporarily. All the children went, and there was only two or three of us left on the platform. My, me being one, my Chinese friend another, and another little boy who was collected. But a car drew in very late and took my friends to this lovely house that we went to stay in. Uh, whether we looked different, because we were dark, I was dark and she was Chinese. And you never knew why you were selected, you know, you just never really knew what the criteria was for selecting you. Although there were only three of us by this time, two girls and myself, nobody wanted us because we were still young children and what they wanted were children that could do some work. And um, the long and short of it was that uh, nobody took us and we were still in the village hall when it was dark. Somebody eventually came along and said, well, I can take a, a, one girl, but I can't take any more. She's already billeting two other children it's strange to say that those two other children were um, daughters of a chap who had been killed flying for the Air Force 
And while he was away, the children had been evacuated and his wife had stayed in London. But due to the bombing, she was killed. So these two girls had neither parent. And the lady who was looking after them um, wanted to adopt them. This very nice couple, Mr and Mrs Cunliffe, um, they came and introduced themselves and then we walked across the green to where their house was and we were shown, my mother and I were shown our bedroom and we became part of that community. Uh, we went to Chesham in Buckinghamshire where we were, went as a family, we were evacuated and there was a man, like a billeting officer that you had to go to who would tell you where to go. And um, there wasn't any room, so one, we walked around, apparently we walked around the area and uh, lay knocking on doors to find out where we could stay for the night. And one lady took pity on us and let us stay f for four weeks. In one room, that's four of us, my mum, my dad, myself, my sister, in one room, no window for four weeks. And my parents said, we've had enough and went back to London. Uh, I was evacuated to uh, Brixham in Devon. Me and my two eldest sisters, um, we was uh, taken in by uh, the trawler owner uh, in Brixham, quite a rich man, and his name was Mr Dyer. I didn't have foster parents. Um, the police I lived in was uh, a Tudor manor house out in the country. It was a huge place. It, it was all glazed brick and dark panelling. It had three wings, and one wing was occupied by evacuee families. Uh, they were all mothers with children, like my mother. And um, the east wing was occupied by land girls. The lady of the house, um, uh, regarded herself as being landed gentry and <laughs> she was not well disposed towards either land girls or evacuees. She, she tried to avoid us. I, was, I went all the way down to this place in Herefordshire, which is near Wales, and it was a long drive and I was very sad and we came to this enormous building in Herefordshire with fields all round it and it was an old school with no lessons at all and I stayed there for two whole years without seeing my parents. Quite posh they were, picked me up in a car which I'd never been in before and took me to their house. The thing I can remember was it was on a hill, it was quite big house next to a field which was quite green and there was a big horse there looking over the fence as I got pulled up. I always remember that. I don't remember much more about I was there five years and I don't remember much more but that's that stuck with me this green and then horse like sticking over the fence looking looking at me as I got out of the car. Uh, we were sitting on a big wooden table it was a bigger house quite a nice house and the lady was on the telephone uh, to somebody had phoned. She had a phone in the house, so they were quite well off at that stage. But my friend was on one side of the table, big wooden kitchen table. And I was on the other, my cases were open. 
and the lady was saying to her neighbour, she didn't believe how clean we were and how wonderful our clothes were, spotlessly clean. She kept on repeating how clean. Because we'd come from London, they expected us to be dirty little urchins. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow. Just you wait and see There'll be love and laughter And peace ever after Tomorrow when the world is The shepherd will tend his sheep The valley will bloom again And Jimmy will go to sleep In his own little room again This podcast was produced by arts and education charity Digital Works. Interviews were conducted by children from Firstdown Primary School and St Thomas's Church of England Primary School. With thanks to all of our interviewees, you can find out more about them, hear their full interviews and also watch the wonderful documentary film made as part of this project at www.londonevacuees.org.uk. Thanks to the Imperial War Museum, to Wandsworth Local Study Centre and to Kensington Local Study Centre. Thanks also to the British Film Institute and the British Council for the Archive Audio. Music was performed by Vera Lynn. The project was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and by the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea's City Living Local Life Fund. Please join us for the next episode when you will hear about the evacuees' new lives across the country. To find out more about our oral history projects, films and podcasts, visit www.digital-works.co.uk.